Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who have transformed their lives since 2016 and are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, and generally stepping outside of their comfort zones. I hope their stories will inspire you to take action on your own. Head on over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. On this episode, I'm thrilled to welcome Catherine Vaughn back to New Faces of Democracy. Catherine is co-executive director of the Democratic Political Action Group, Swing Left, and she was one of my first video profiles at New Faces of Democracy in 2018. You can find the link to that in the podcast notes. Catherine and I do an election debrief and discuss lessons learned this year. We talk about all the progress that's been made over the last four years and the work that remains, making democracy a habit and reasons to be hopeful. She also tells us the most impactful ways we can help in the upcoming Georgia Senate runoff, no matter where we live. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Catherine Vaughn. Catherine Vaughn, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Thank you so much for having me, Nancy. So Catherine, you and I met back in 2018 when you were at a fledgling group called Flippable, and that was focused on helping Democrats win state races. And I did a video profile of you at that time for New Faces of Democracy. It was my very first ones, I think, like maybe my second. And we talked back then about the reasons why you launched Flippable after working on Hillary's campaign in Ohio in 2016 and why state races matter so much in our everyday lives. And now I would love to talk to you about what you've been up to since then and what you're doing now. So why don't you start with that? Sounds good. So a lot has happened since. I think we spoke before the 2018 midterms. Yes, we did. As we know, the midterms went really, really well for Democrats. We won back the House at the federal level, and we won a number of state legislative majorities and made progress in a lot of states. That was really important. And I think beyond that, in 2018, we didn't work on some of the ballot initiatives that were happening across the country, but we saw a real kind of referendum for change across the country, particularly when it came to pro-democracy policies like independent redistricting or voting rights for people with felony convictions or expanding voting across the country. And that would become really important. We had no idea that the pandemic was on the horizon at that point, but it would become really important as we thought about changing voting conditions in the 2020 election. So after the midterms, I actually sat down with the leadership at Swing Left, and they had been a partner of ours and a peer in the landscape since we both started right after the 2016 elections. And we were just kind of sharing what we learned and talking about what was next for our organizations. And one of the things we talked about was the idea of coming together to provide a one-stop shop for people who were interested in getting involved in elections. When we started, both of our organizations were hyper-focused on the level of the ballot that we were focused on. For Swing Left, it was the U.S. House. For us, it was for Flippable, it was state legislatures. But when we thought about 2020 and how there would be elections all the way up and down the ballot from the state house to the White House and every level in between, we thought that it wasn't really convenient for our users to have to go to Flippable for one type of race and Swing Left for another type of race and maybe another organization for a third type of race. And we wanted to create that one-stop shop, at least from kind of state races on up. There are so many important positions in our democracy, and we don't right now have the resources to work on everything, but those were some really important ones. And so we started talking about working together. We also talked about building new products together. It got us really excited. And in May of 2019, we announced that we were merging with Swing Left. 
and becoming one organization and kind of one central home for getting involved in electoral activism, either as a volunteer or a donor or just someone who's interested in getting involved. So it's been a busy (laughs) year and a half since then. Our first big project that we worked on together was the 2019 Virginia elections at the state legislative level. And Flippable had made a lot of progress toward flipping the House of Delegates in Virginia, but we still had just a couple seats to go, as well as in the Virginia State Senate, which has elections every four years. So we worked on that together. We drove tons of volunteers, converted that midterms energy into the state that was right on the brink of flipping and that has been voting Democratic for a really long time at the statewide level. And we flipped the entire state legislature in Virginia, creating a Democratic trifecta. And that was huge. They passed all sorts of voting rights provisions, opening up early voting and expanding access to the vote, which was huge in the 2020 elections, as well as a lot of other policies that are really important, criminal justice reform, expanding Medicaid, which had happened a little bit earlier, but continuing to push on expanding health care to as many people as possible. And then, of course, 2020 was coming up (laughs) and it's been a very eventful year. But I guess just to summarize a little bit of what we worked on. So we recognized that it can be very daunting to get involved in elections where so much is at stake for our user base. Thinking about the state elections that really matter for redistricting, as well as trying to maintain control of the House while flipping the Senate and flipping the White House. It was a lot of stuff that we needed to work on. So we had this strategy called our super state strategy. And the idea behind that is that a lot of those races, a lot of those key battlegrounds really overlap. So there's important state races and important Senate races and important electoral college battlegrounds all in the same place. So a state like Arizona is a great example of that, or Georgia, where we have two Senate races that we're fighting for. And so we identified 12 states that had that kind of layered importance, multiple levels of the ballot that were really important. And we worked on those super states and that helped our volunteers and donors and folks who are interested really just start to frame this fight in a way that was manageable. So it's not 50 states, all levels of the ballot. Where do I put my energy? Where do I put my time and resources? But it helped people focus and people could focus on one state or they could focus on one level of the ballot, but it was a more kind of condensed and consolidated strategy that we were working on. And then finally, of course, we're past the 2020 elections now. I think we did really fantastic work this cycle. So we worked with an organization called Vote Forward to drive letters to voters, which was critical during the pandemic, where we couldn't necessarily knock on people's doors in a safe way. So we wrote over 19 million letters to voters in the 2020 cycle, which is just insane to think about. We have some stories of voters who actually did register or go out to vote or even figure out how to get in contact with the person who had written to them. So it's really heartwarming stuff around the importance of actually reaching out to voters in whatever means possible. And then we raised over $25 million for candidates and organizations working in our super states and across the country. And a lot of that was super helpful. I think in state legislative races often made up a big chunk of our candidates' budgets. And in Senate races, I think The emphasis for us is that we were getting those dollars out the door pretty early. There was a big fundraising surge in the very, very late stages of the election. But our model has always been focusing on trying to get money to candidates as early as possible. And those early dollars really make a difference. So we still have some work to do on that front. We saw a huge surge of donations after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed, and we had a lot of energy. We're hoping to show people the importance of driving those dollars earlier. 
can speak a little bit. I know I've been going on for a while. No, no, no. <laughs> I love it. You've hit on so many different things I want to talk about. So let's just back up for one second. So for people who don't know about how Swing Left is set up, I happen to know a little bit, but you have a national organization and then you have groups underneath that. So how does that work functionally for someone who wants to get involved? Well, it's interesting. I would actually say that we have four major audiences and because our goal is to help anyone get involved, however, is comfortable for them. So I would say our four major audiences, first, you can split them in terms of donors and volunteers. And then you can split those in terms of people who are kind of doing year-round activity versus the surge of folks who come in at the end. We always expect there to be kind of a hockey stick at the end of an election. Those folks who a few weeks before the election, they say, I really want to get involved. What do I do? <laughs> and then there are people who are working year-round. And so our groups represent some of those volunteers who it might be January in an off year, and they are figuring out how to reach out to voters. And so we had a bunch of groups form across the country when we started, and then those groups spawned other groups, and we put some real effort into forming more this cycle. And there's a lot of real creativity in terms of how these groups function. So depending on where people live, if they're in a blue state or a purple state or even a red state, but districts or states they're near where they can canvas or phone bank, and also just interesting tactics, their leadership structure and what they choose to do. And there's a lot of variability in these groups, which can make it a little bit unwieldy, but also leads to real creativity and can help us learn more about what's effective. What are these groups doing that can help us incorporate some of those tactics into the work that we do year round to prepare for that surge at the end? Yeah, that's interesting. And our groups have also been really helpful in things like phone banking, which I didn't mention before, but we also made millions of, of phone calls at the end of the cycle. And they can help train some of these incoming volunteers who might not be in the habit of doing that year round and kind of provide a home base for people who are getting involved for the first time in September or October. So the groups, you can either join a group or you can just sign up to do stuff through your website. I mean, that's how it worked in this last exactly. cycle. Yeah, because I did a profile of one of your, at that point, it was your most successful fundraising group, 31st Street Swing Left with Lisa Herrick. And now I still get all their emails. And I know they worked really hard on Virginia because they were based in Washington, D.C. So they had a lot of opportunity to really move the needle there. And their level of organization is really astounding. They're definitely people we learn from and talk to when we're thinking about, like, they're just such a fundraising powerhouse, as well as a great group of volunteers. So as we think about, well, how do we help? How do we inspire other people and share best practices with them? They're one of our beacons for them. That's great. I love that it's a two-way street. Like, you're both learning from each other, not top-down. You talked about 2018 and how successful it was, mm -hmm. and that was really inspiring to so many people to see that... I think people felt a real tangible result from their efforts. Many people who were getting involved for the first time. Then came 2020. It's more complicated. I would love to hear your thoughts about what happened so we could go through. I've got some highlights and lowlights that I'll throw out there, and you can just sort of give me your general impression. So, of course, we won the White House. The importance of that can't be overstated. And for the other stuff, state races were not what we were generally hoping for. So it was kind of a mix. So there were three new Republican trifectas that came out of this election. Is that right? I got the number right. I have Montana, New Hampshire, and Alaska. But then Florida, which also went much better than we had hoped for, passed a minimum wage law. 
just kind of progressive. And then Montana, also a very red state, legalized marijuana, also generally a progressive issue. Georgia is, I think, the closest to where we saw a blue wave happen. You discussed that already. We have the two Senate runoffs, Biden won, and some really important sheriff wins, because I've been also focused on sheriff races on the podcast. And Wisconsin, kind of a success story in a way, because Biden won and they didn't get a supermajority in the state legislature. And that seems like a low bar, but it would have been huge. And you can tell us why. What else? Arizona, like you said, the Democrats won both Senate seats, and that's huge. But the GOP held their trifecta. And I know that a lot of us were working hard on trying to break that. In Maine, the opposite. Susan Collins kept her seat despite massive efforts to flip that seat. But the Democrats kept their trifecta. So that's all the mixed bag that I was talking about. Some bad news, the new trifectas in general, I think Democrats underperformed vis-a-vis expectations. The good news is that there was still good news. So all that said, what was your take on the mixed results in the election in general? Well, first of all, that's a great summary. <laughs> I need to write down those points. You did a great I'll job of encapsulating those kind of contradictions and what we saw across the country. The first thing I like to point to when we think about this is how our expectations shifted over the cycle, because I think that because of some of these systemic polling errors, we had our hopes so high in, say, August, September of this year. But if you really look back, you would have seen those expectations tempered a little bit earlier on. And so I like to start from, okay, it's, let's call it early 2019. What were we expecting then? Or what would the fundamentals lead us to believe? And I think from a fundamentals perspective, we would have expected a really close presidential race because incumbents are typically favored to win. We've seen the economy. The economy was performing very well until COVID hit, not as well as Trump likes to try to get people to believe. So we would have expected a pretty close presidential race. I think that Democrats were not necessarily favored to win the Senate. And the state battles were going to be hard because of gerrymandering and redistricting. Not impossible. And we still focused on them because, A, they're so important for our democratic processes. And B, they're typically very underfunded relative to Republicans and relative to other levels of the ballot. So we tend to do a better job of fundraising for, say, presidential races or Senate races or even the House than we do at the state level. But that was going to be a tough battle. We saw these polls come in. We're learning more about systematic non-response bias and who is picking up the phone and responding to polls and who isn't. But we didn't kind of know that at the time. The polls in 2018 had been pretty accurate. So we had a reason to be fairly trusting. And then we saw that there was a 90% chance that Biden would win. And there was an 80% chance that we were going to take the Senate back. And I think we got really excited. And I think everyone, Republicans and Democrats alike, started shifting their funding to stretch races to a bunch of Senate races that maybe were nowhere near as close as we thought. At that point, I think there was what we like to call resource saturation. So there was so much money being thrown at some of those races that kind of no matter what, like an extra dollar or an extra thousand or 10000 or $100,000 wasn't going to do much for Sarah Gideon, for example. And we've seen some articles come out about just how saturated the airwaves were and how all these voters in Maine were getting bothered all the time through phone banking and that sort of thing. So I think at a certain point, 
you couldn't throw anything else at a Maine voter. They were going to vote the way they wanted to vote. And I think Maine's an interesting state. And I think Susan Collins as an incumbent and as someone who's been in office for so long has a particular reputation in Maine. There's a real independent streak in Maine where they might have voted for Democrats for the state legislature, but I think they aren't necessarily wedded to the party as much as in certain other states. So I think that's an interesting example. But in states like Florida, we didn't see much movement at the state legislative level. And yet we saw these more progressive policies being passed. I wonder if there's just a branding problem. And I don't want to wade too much into some of the debates that are happening about like our slogans or that sort of thing, because I have my own personal opinions on them. But I do think that we need to figure out how to appeal to people based on the policies that they like they are on our side from a policy perspective. Exactly. I think from maybe it's a branding perspective or an institutional perspective. If you think about just all of the deep, deep work that Republicans have done to capture or work with, say, religious institutions, media institutions, the kind of cultural fabric that brings people together, I think that we've had a harder time doing that. And I don't want to dismiss any of the efforts. I mean, there's some really amazing examples of how we have looking at what's happening in Georgia. So I don't think that we've failed across the board, but I think that we need to work harder on some of the longer term, deep cultural work that we're going to need to do. Absolutely. Four years of working together versus showing up six months before the election and just exactly people are going to vote your way because they always have. And delivering results to people along those four years, listening, being responsive, et cetera. I think that that's important. So what do you say to people who might be feeling a little discouraged? What's your answer to people who are, well, euphoric over Biden's win, but as I referred to before, people who really like got engaged for the first time, they felt real rewards in 2018. And now in 2020, they're like, wait, what? Like we did so much. I mean, raised so much. I mean, there was so much great momentum. How are you responding to that going forward? Like keeping everyone in the fold pumped up still? It's a great question. I think first, it's really important to recognize that given how close the margins were in some of these key states, like look at Wisconsin, look at Georgia, look at Arizona, 10,000 votes or thereabouts determined the winner of the Electoral College in each of these states. Our work really mattered. The voters that we contacted, like we wrote 19 million letters to voters, and this race ended up, because of the way the Electoral College works, being decided by tens of thousands of votes in these states. Obviously, we saw bigger victories in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania. It was nowhere near as close as, say, Donald Trump's victory over Hillary, but it really mattered. So I think that that's one thing just to remind people that their work to contact voters and even their work to fundraise for candidates really did matter in the end because it came down to some pretty close statewide margins. But I think obviously that makes you think this is so crazy. Like Joe Biden won by millions of votes in the popular vote. And yet we're focused on these like tiny margins and these arbitrarily drawn borders. But that's what we're up against. And so it's a big challenge. It's not just how do we get someone who is much more popular from a popular vote perspective, but it's how do we work within these constraints that are totally undemocratic. And whether it's the Electoral College or gerrymandering or redistricting, that's what we have to continually fight for. It's going to be a longer fight. I wish we had swept the Senate. We could eliminate the filibuster. We could do all sorts of stuff, but we're not there. And so I think that it requires a little bit of commitment. And hopefully over these past four years, people have really built the habit and built that kind of resolve and commitment 
we don't have to be fighting at 100% all the time. I think that's another thing to kind of remind ourselves. We're going to have a little bit of a break in early 2021. A lot of, as we know, there's redistricting happening. I think we are in a better position redistricting-wise than we were last time around. Despite some of the disappointing state results, we had a bunch of states pass independent redistricting commissions, and we also have Democratic governors in key states. And that's, I guess, another thing to think about, like the victories that we had in 2018 helped protect our democracy in 2020. If you think about, we have Democratic governors in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, like these are states where you could see some real hijinks happen in terms of the GOP trying to shut down counting, trying to shut down polling places, and we luckily had some protection there. So all that said, I think an election is kind of a barometer of one point in time, but the fight to protect our democracy is something that we're all going to have to be involved in <laughs> for our whole lives. Exactly. It's not that easy, but it's I mean, instant gratification is nice. <laughs> it doesn't always work that way. And I mean, like so many people I've talked to on this podcast, they say this is a multi-cycle process. It is not just one and done. Go back to your old version of normal. It's just that clearly didn't work. And also, I mean, how big an impact did the pandemic have? I know that you talked about phone banking and I know you were text banking too and 19 million letters, but how badly did it hurt not to be canvassing, knocking on doors? And Republicans were, I heard, to some degree. One of Flippable's alumni from 2018 was recently on The Daily Podcast. Her name's Patty Schachner in Wisconsin, and she's a state senator. She had just a heart-wrenching story. She is a medical examiner, so she was in charge of preparing her rural community for COVID and ended up having to see a lot of really sad stuff because COVID was, there was such a big surge in Wisconsin. And she talked about how this whole time while she was dealing with COVID and also while several of her family members got it and her father passed away from COVID, she was also in a very competitive state Senate race and her opponent was holding events and doing unmasked stuff going door to door. And she, of course, was not doing that both because it's safer and also because of her role as someone in the medical community and just from a values perspective. And he ended up winning. So she lost her seat and she was in very, very competitive rural Wisconsin district. So it was a tough fight for her and she didn't have the benefit of the 2018 blue wave this time around. So I think that really did affect Democrats. I think that there are are safer ways to do door-to-door canvassing. We've seen folks in our community that do like lit drops where they knock on the door, they drop some literature and kind of run away. (laughs) And of course, everyone's masked. And we've seen some examples in Minnesota where folks were doing door-to-door canvassing the whole time around and we saw more success there. So I think there are ways to do it more safely. I still think it was probably the right decision to be as conservative as possible and not put people at risk. I guess the other thing to reflect on here is just the kind of dual realities that people are experiencing as you know Republicans and Democrats and just seeing how Fox and Breitbart and these kind of media outlets on the right can really brainwash people into thinking that this isn't serious. So I don't know what to do about that, but I do think that we can find safe ways to contact voters in the meantime and hopefully get past this pandemic over the next year. Exactly. So I just want to touch on fundraising briefly before we go and talk about Georgia. So I know that you said Swing Left raised $25 million over four years. 
over the past two years. So we've two raised about, years. I believe, $40 million over the past four. Incredible. <laughs> <It's been> a lot. <laughs> what criteria do you look at when you target races and allocate funds? So first we look at what are the battlegrounds that we are focused on this cycle? So this cycle was the Senate, state legislatures, and what will it take to reach a majority in some of those chambers? We look at the path to victory. So what are the seats that are most likely to flip, but then also incorporate where we are in terms of polling. So that's where we were maybe a little ambitious this time around because we anticipated more of a wave than we saw. And then we look at fundraising. So we might have someone who is 50-50, really, really competitive race, but they've raised so much money that we actually, it might make more sense to look at someone who's at a 54-46 projection, but it's a lesser known race. And so if we invest more, we might be able to help them more than someone who already is getting a lot of attention and resources. So those are the main criteria we look at. Of course, we also look at qualitative factors, the strength of campaigns, field operations, and grassroots donor support and that sort of thing as well. And I know that you created an investment tool this year where people could sort of, well, you tell me about it. It's called Blueprint. And I think you are the designer, author, whatever. Architect. (laughs) Architect. There you go. I just made that up. But (laughs) so Blueprint is, we talked about those four audience categories that we focus on, kind of the year-round volunteers, the late-stage volunteers. On the donor side, there are folks who, I'm kind of one of these donors, like I'll get really worked up about something and I will donate as an expressive act. But then there are also folks who want to build a practice of giving and they want to do it regularly and they want more in-depth feedback about kind of their gifts. And so we built Blueprint, which is our kind of donor advisory tool for those strategic and ongoing donors. So it's a little bit kind of like the year-round volunteer versus the late-stage volunteer model, but a little bit different in donation. And so we offer quarterly recommendations for those donors. And we say, we're going to put your dollars to best use at the right times. And in the 2020 cycle, we focused on, we had basically a portfolio that would shift the allocation slightly from quarter to quarter of organizations, Senate races, and state legislative races. That will likely change in the coming years. I think we're going to do a lot more of an emphasis on those organizations that are doing that year-round work. We've always included that as part of Blueprint. It's a really important part of our model, but I think we're seeing more and more just how important that is. So we're thinking about expanding a little bit. We've always also had a function where we can meet donors' preferences by creating custom Blueprints for them. So you can say, I'm really interested in the Sun Belt. I want to focus on Georgia and Florida, Arizona, Texas, and we can put together something for that. So we're thinking a little bit more going into 2021 about diversifying the different types of states that we're focused on, including some longer shot states as well. So looking at the degree of voter suppression in the Deep South and thinking about how can we make certain states competitive over time, as well as invest in states that are competitive now. So that's kind of one of the directions that we're thinking about going in. But it's an exciting product. We raised $5 million through it, hoping to kind of continue to increase that as we build our following. But I'll keep you updated. Yeah, that's not on hiatus then. It's going to keep going even when we're not in an election cycle. Will that then, during these sort of more off years, will it be more geared to the organizations you're discussing? Yeah, exactly. When there are candidates that we can support, they'll be included in the blueprint. But I think when there aren't, we'll continue to focus on grassroots community organizations doing work. That's really exciting. And do people get updates of what's going on with an organization or a campaign along the way? So you feel like you're part of it? They probably get 
too much, but no, it's great. <laughs> I mean, we have these like 25 page, beautiful, in-depth impact reports where you can learn a lot about kind of what are these organizations doing? What have they accomplished? And really also framing it in their own words. I think that in the political space, you tend to be so focused on a couple metrics, like what did the margin look like? What did turnout look like? For a lot of these organizations, they have their own missions that are about serving those groups, serving those constituencies. So it's really interesting to hear about what are they focused on? What was New Georgia Project focused on this cycle that made them so effective, not just at getting out the vote, but at all of the other objectives they have around holding electeds accountable or you know, continuing to build their community? Well, that's a great segue to Georgia. So like you mentioned, we both alluded to these runoffs that are coming up. I think it's four weeks from today. And there's a tremendous amount at stake, as you mentioned. I mean, if we went both, then the Senate is tied and Kamala would be the tiebreaker. <laughs> That's a dream. I'm fighting for that dream. And I'd love to know what Swing Left's doing in Georgia and what people can do to help. We have Georgia-fied our operation. <laughs> so we are 100% focused on winning these runoffs right now. We have been doing letter writing for the past few weeks. Our big send date is actually coming up on December 7th. That's today. <laughs> Our big send date is today, the day of recording. But yeah, I've just been so focused on that date for a long time that I didn't realize it was today. And then we also are going to be hosting, or we have been hosting and will continue to, Georgia call nights where people can call in to voters and make sure that they have all of the information they need. And we found that that's a really important complement to letters, that we often chase a letter with a phone call because a letter will tell you the basics. But if you have questions like, how do I avoid COVID? Or can I go to the early voting site at this time? Or if I have a ballot, do I need to mail it? Or can I turn it in? Like, There's a lot of really confusing questions as a voter, particularly during COVID, with lots of methods of voting. And so those phone calls can help clarify things for people. And we found that the live back and forth is really helpful. We are raising for both Warnock and Ossoff. And then we're also raising in conjunction with Movement Voter Project for community-based organizations in Georgia, which are doing a lot of really important volunteering. You may notice that I'm not encouraging everyone to go buy a plane ticket to Georgia. So we're really deferring to our partners on the ground who are asking that they really focus the on the ground efforts on Georgia locals who can more effectively speak to people door to door. So trying to channel folks through them or do tactics that are better positioned for out of state volunteers. I'm sure they don't want during COVID a zillion people showing up. Just sounds like a bad idea. And in terms of the blue wave in Georgia that sort of happened, I mean, did happen, maybe not at the state level so much. To what degree do you think the work of Stacey Abrams was game-changing there? I think it's the fact that she's been doing this for a decade in the state that has been game-changing. There's still a lot of data coming out about like who turned out and who's responsible, and we'll never know fully. But I think she's been working both as House Minority Leader when she was in the legislature, as well as just a nonprofit leader in the state to focus on registering voters, focus on eliminating all of these voter suppression tactics and laws that are on the books and raising awareness. So I think just the network of organizations she's created from New Georgia Project to Fair Fight, to Fair Count, to all these organizations and the focus on long-term community building efforts, I think has really made a huge difference and I think that the longevity of it is really important. So I would urge people to think about, there are Stacey Abrams in every state that are doing the work that are unsung heroes right now. We didn't know about her until 
at least not everyone knew about her until a few years ago when she ran for governor. And, and I think that we should be funding not just the people who make it to have a game-changing gubernatorial run and make these national organizations, but also people doing that community work. And that's part of what we're trying to do with Blueprint is really identify who are those leaders in every state that are doing this work. I love that. I know Movement Voter Project as well. And I think they do a lot of that too. I mean, they don't just work in Georgia, obviously. They work with groups around the country. So as we mentioned, Georgia election in four weeks, win or lose, that will finally end this election cycle. But it's not going to end the partisan issues that are really plaguing us. And we know that every election going forward for a while, I don't know, hopefully not my lifetime, is going to have a very galvanized and entrenched Trump base. What's the planet swing left for the future? What lessons have you learned from 2020 going forward? And what are your plans? We've always been focused on elections. We will continue to be focused on elections. And so our focus is less on exactly how do we resolve policy debates within our party, for example, and more on how do we galvanize the effort that it will take to hold on to the House in what might be a bruising 2022 midterms or to play both offense and defense in the Senate, defending some of the seats that we won or the states that we've won recently, playing offense in states that have been trending blue and that sort of thing. So I think this will be a new challenge for us in that we have been on the offensive for the past four years. We started in a place where we didn't have any chamber in the in the federal government. We're at a, a pretty low place in terms of state legislative majorities. And we've been fighting to clawing our way back in certain ways. And now we're going to have this kind of mix. We're in a mixed place where we're going to need to be on the defensive. That sometimes isn't as galvanizing. I think that people really like to be part of the resistance. But now we're in a place where we need to hold on to power. So that's our real focus is trying to keep up the momentum and show people the importance of elections in being able to affect the policy change that we need to make. I think that that is a piece of the puzzle. There are also organizations that are doing advocacy work that are trying to push the Biden administration to adopt some of the policies or language that they want to be adopted. There are people that are doing more community organizing work, some of whom we support with Blueprint, that has electoral components, but also has accountability components and other work to kind of meet those communities' needs. So I want to emphasize that all of these efforts are needed together. We need to be able to hold on to power. That is really important. That's what we're focused on. But we also need to know what to do with that power. And that's what a lot of advocacy organizations that are focused on single issues are really able to do really well. So yeah, that is our focus for now. I think that, I guess another thing I'll say is we're really focused on how do we build tech products, tools, and community around this process of winning elections. So we've figured out how to get millions of letters out the door, how to streamline that operation. We've built tools that help people really easily donate or shift into volunteer shifts. And so continuing to innovate on that front is really important to us. Like, what is the next need? As we look at the different audiences that we work with, what are they asking us for? What's causing them a headache? What do they want to know more about? And how can we provide that information to them? That's exciting. So looking back over the last four years since you, I think you started Flippable, I think you told me it was the day after the election. <laughs> you have been hyper-focused on this for four years. So looking back at your journey, what gives you hope as you look towards the future? I think it's just been amazing to see how people have committed and become really sophisticated over time. And 
we talk about how this is a long-term effort. And there were so many people in my community, I knew very little about state politics when we started Flippable. And I feel like I've learned a lot more. We've seen people who maybe started and they were kind of hashtag resistance and anti-Trump. And then they learned about how to get involved in the House. And then they learned how to get involved in states. And now they're learning about sheriffs and DA races. And so I think that kind of like deepening of knowledge and just seeing people become experts and seeing them learn how to be effective. That's really exciting as someone who always been really interested in how organizations tick and how individuals develop in the workplace and seeing that at this huge scale, even though they're volunteering their time, they're not working for us, but we have volunteers, donors, activists around the country who have taken it upon themselves to learn. And I'm proud to have been a small part of that, to have provided some of the resources and tools to help them more deeply engage in our democracy. So that gives me hope. And I think that even though some people might be feeling a little discouraged at this point, I don't think that that well of knowledge just disappears and that well of kind of the deepening of understanding of like how our system works. So I'm excited for people to continue on that journey. There might be stumbling blocks along the way. It's not going to be easy, but I think it's been very fulfilling. And I'm excited for more and more people to have that experience. Well, that's great. On that note, I want to thank you, Catherine Vaughn, for joining me today. I look forward to staying on the journey with you with Swing Left. And just thank you for all the work you've done for four years. You haven't played a small part. I think you played a big part. Thank you so much, Nancy. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.